long route, so 2 Corinthians chapter 5, just a, a standalone chapter that I think has a great message to it, and I hope that you'll benefit a lot from the study um, as much as I did getting prepared for it. A little background on 2 Corinthians. Um, of course, this was written to the church at Corinth. From what we can gather, this is probably the fourth letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, which is kind of odd because it's 2 Corinthians, not 4 Corinthians. From what we can tell, there was a letter that was lost before what we know of as 1 Corinthians, so that's really the second letter. Then there's a letter after that, and then there's what we know as 2 Corinthians. So this is actually the fourth letter. But Paul wrote this book, this letter, as a follow-up to what he describes as his painful visit. If you look in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 1, it talks about how he had to go and um, in between 1 and 2 Corinthians, he had to go make things right there with the church of Corinth and correct them on some things. And he was writing this as a follow-up to that to kind of make sure those things were being done. And also in chapter 9, he was preparing them for his eventual return where they were going to make good on the pledge that they had made in their giving. So he was kind of setting them up for that too. But chapter 5 is kind of sandwiched in the middle of all this. And that's why I want us to spend our time tonight. Um, just to get a little bit of context, let's look um, at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 uh, through 18. Just the end of that chapter real briefly, just to get us kind of moving in the right direction. Chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So this is a, this is a great introduction to this chapter 5. Um, Paul's talking about these contrasts here in these three verses. I don't know if you're one that likes to mark and make notes in your Bible or not, but years ago I made notes in these verses, especially... Uh, around the outer self wasting away and the inner self being renewed, just those contrasts there. And then verse 17 where he talks about this light momentary affliction and how that's compared to the eternal weight of glory. Um, the light is contrasted with the weight. The momentary is contrasted with the eternal. And this affliction is contrasted with the glory. So Paul's helping them to see what awaits us um, in, in heaven versus what we're going through right now. And he talks about the seen versus the unseen, the transient versus the eternal. So all these different contrasts he's bringing up here. And then he gets into chapter 5. And I want us to read all, all these verses here. It's a long reading, but bear with me. I think it'll set the stage for what we'll go through kind of individually as we go. So chapter 5, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as his guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience." 
We are not committing ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that we may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who, might, who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake was raised, died and was raised. And verse 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So thank you for going through that long reading with us. Um, let's go back up to the beginning of the chapter. Paul talks about this tent that is our earthly home. Um, if you know much about Paul, you've probably heard him referred to as a tent-making preacher. So he was bivocational. He didn't just preach, but he earned his own living in a, uh, a secular type of setting. Um, so he made tents. That was probably fresh on his mind uh, when he was sitting down to write this. And he compares our bodies, our earthly homes, to a tent. So tents are, of course, temporary things, right? You know, no one wants to live in a tent indefinitely. Tents are where you live if you're camping for a day or two. Tents are where people live if they don't have a home that can be permanently theirs. It's just for a season and that's it. Um, so Paul's kind of giving us this idea about our bodies, about being a temporary type of place. Um, and driving home this point that we have this building that's waiting for us from God, this house that's not made with hands. In verse 2, he, talks about, uh, he starts talking about how we need to be longing for our heavenly body. He uses this language about us groaning. Um, he says, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul talked a little bit about the resurrection. Um, you probably remember the second half of that chapter really kind of goes into a lot of detail. We don't learn a whole lot because there's still a lot of mystery about what our resurrected bodies will be like. But Paul's referencing somewhat of this right now when he's talking about this heavenly dwelling that we're looking to put on versus where we are in this earthly tent right now. He says that we groan in this body. Um, I think he's getting to the point that we groan in this body because we realize the limitations that our physical body has versus how superior our resurrected body is going to be to come. You know, these bodies that we live in right now that are temporary, they get sick. We get tired. Uh, it's weak. It's susceptible and prone to failings in the sinful nature. Um, we have all these weaknesses and limitations that are present in our physical bodies. And in that sense, we need to be realizing that this tent that we live in right now kind of leads us to those limitations. It's not something that we should always plan on being in. This is just for a season and that's it. And I think that begs the question for us, are we really longing for heaven? Are we really longing for that future body that we're going to have. Um, it's, 
it's perfectly fine to take care of these earthly tents that we have as best we can. I think that's part of our stewardship that God's entrusted us to. But we're not going to live in these bodies forever. Um, we need to be looking forward to our, our home in heaven. Um, I think we need to ask ourselves, are we too comfortable on earth? I think it's easy to get that way, especially in 21st century America, right? Um, it's easy for us to get caught up in all the comforts and luxuries and things that we have where people don't want to die. You know, None of us really want to die, but most of us really want to stay here and keep living the life we're living because we got it pretty good, right? But the Bible teaches a very different message from that. You know, this world is not our home, we sing in our songs. Um, for, in Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, he describes us as sojourners and pilgrims, right? We're not really here for good. We're just here for a season, and that's it. But it's easy in our lives to get caught up in the here and now and the things that are seen, the things that are temporary, and get caught up in those things rather than those things that are unseen and eternal. Um, Paul talks about how we need to well, before I move on to that, I, I do want to say I, I think it's okay for us to be happy in this world. I don't want to paint a, a picture where we have to go around sulking and just constantly groaning and just always being miserable in these bodies. I don't think that's what God intends. I think we can be happy, but I think we need to make sure that we're taking that perspective from time to time and realizing what we're aiming for, what our goal is, and realizing that this isn't it. What we're, what we're living here and now is not what it's all about. That's where we're headed when this life is over. Paul talks about wanting to be further clothed. And again, this kind of goes around to that mystery of the resurrection that, that we have. If you look in your Bibles a couple pages back in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, verse 37 I think is, is interesting in how he puts it. Actually, verse 36 starting... You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow in the body, and what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. Verse 38, but God gives it a body as he is chosen. So think of it in this way. You know, if you, you may be really smart in what seeds look like, but if I just held up a random seed in front of you, you know, you might not know exactly what was going to come out of that seed, right? It could be an apple seed. It could be all kinds of seeds. You might have a guess, but you wouldn't know for sure until you bury it in the ground and it symbolically dies there. And then it sits there for a certain period of time until it's time for it to come out of the ground and to be raised up and make whatever it's supposed to make, right? So I think that's the figure that Paul is kind of teaching us about this resurrected body. And I think that's what he's getting at when he says we don't want to be found naked. We're not going to you know, be unclothed, but we want to be further clothed so that what is mortal can be swallowed up by life. It's, it's, our bodies are going to be the same but different. and We don't know exactly how that's going to be. God knows what kind of eternal body he's going to give us, um, but it's, it's going to be different from where we are. So um, Paul's kind of making that, that point. I think that's interesting to think about that you know, our, our bodies will still be our bodies, but it'll be a different kind of body after it's sown in the ground and after it's raised up at the last day. Down in verse 5, he kind of changes gears a little bit. He talks about our confidence that we have in God. It says He starts off in verse 5, he who, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God. God is preparing us 
Um, perhaps with all these light momentary afflictions we mentioned earlier at the beginning from chapter 4, verse uh, uh, 16 through 18. Perhaps it's these little trials we're going through that God is perfecting us as time goes on to prepare us for our home of heaven. And then he talks about how God has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. And if you look up the ancient Greek word here and the original meaning of this, it, it had this idea of a, think of it like a down payment, like a pledge or a promise that required future payments, so a partial payment that was coming. So if you buy a house, you put down a down payment, and then you agree to keep paying on it month by month by month, right, until it's done. That's kind of the idea that Paul's getting at when he talks about um, God has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. It's interesting, in modern Greek terms, this word has kind of moved a little bit to have a different connotation. Now this word really means an engagement ring, which kind of has the same idea to it, right? You know, you give your engagement ring to, your, to, to the bride-to-be, and that's the pledge, that's the promise for future uh, services down the road, right? When, husbands, when you get married, you give the wife that ring, and you promise and you pledge that you're going to be faithful to her from that point on, and every day you keep building on that and keep paying that and keep doing that over and over again. And that's kind of what this idea revolves around when the Spirit is this guarantee from God. And that gives us confidence, right? Because God's going to give us, this, he, he gave us as Christians the spirit. That's the down payment. That's the pledge. That's the engagement ring. And he's going to follow through on it. Um, if, 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 uh, if you put down a down payment, you're going to continue on with the payments. If you give an engagement ring, you're going to follow through. You're going to get married. And you're going to continue on with that commitment and that relationship. That's what God's doing with us when he gives us the spirit as that guarantee. He says in verse 6, so we are always of good courage. While we know that we are at home in the body, we are therefore away from the Lord. So that makes sense, right? We're home in this body. This is all we know. But we are away from the Lord just, uh, just by matter of fact from that. So because of that, verse 7, we have to walk by faith, not sight. It's kind of weird that an optometrist would bring up a verse like that, right? My whole job is about making people see. Um, but Paul says we walk by faith, not sight. Because remember, the things that are seen are temporary. The things that are unseen are eternal. And that's the kind of stuff we need to be focusing on. This is one of the most challenging parts of being human, right? It's difficult for us to believe in something that we can't visually or physically in some way sense. And we have to put our faith in it. The angels, I wonder what the angels probably think about us as humans, right? Because the angels perceive God. They're in God's presence. They don't have to have this belief. They don't need the faith that you and I require to believe in God. Um, <clears throat> it's a different, different kind of setting. I wonder what they think of us having to walk by faith and not by sight. But we know that one day that will become our reality as well. You know, and Lord hastes the day when our faith shall be sight. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, remember the, these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. Why is the greatest of these three things love? Because faith will not be needed anymore when we get to heaven. We'll realize it. Hope won't be needed because we're, we've got everything we could ever hope for in heaven. Um, but love will continue on in heaven. So faith is going to go away at some point. The faith will become sight and we're going to see God when this life is over. He says again in verse 8, um, We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Being at home with the Lord, verse 8, is really what makes heaven heaven, if you think about it. I don't know what your picture of heaven might be. As a kid, I thought 
picture of heaven would be playing basketball all day long and just having the time of my life. You know, summers as a teenager when you just kind of had the world at your fingertips could do what you want to do. I don't think that's really what heaven's going to be like. Because heaven is going to be where we are at home with the Lord. That's what makes it heaven. The Bible talks about death, and, and it, when, when it refers to death, it talks about a separation, right? Death is a separation of your body from your soul. And when you talk about a spiritual death, you have this separation of the soul from God. When we sin, our sin separates us from God, and that's that spiritual death that we've all partaken of and that we don't want to continue on. Because if that continues and we end our lives in that state, we are eternally separated from God, and that's a place we call hell. We don't want to be a part of that. That's that separation. Because heaven is being with God for all eternity, at home with the Lord, versus hell where we are completely separated from God for all eternity. So um, we should long, we should groan for this, for this ability to be able to be in heaven and to be with God and to finally be at home with him. We need to realize that we might feel at home in our bodies, but we're not really home here. Um, our home is going to be when we are in the presence of God. So let's look at verses 9 and 10. Paul talks about the aim of our life in light of this eternal destiny that we realize. We've talked about the Christian's destiny in these last eight verses. Since we want to be with God, we make it our goal to please Him. So verse 9, so whether we are home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. One commentary I read about this phrase it this way, you report to headquarters, your business is to please Christ. I mean, we don't think of Christian living in those terms, kind of in a mission like we probably should sometimes, but your mission is to please Christ. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 29, I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. So if we live, we live to please God. If we die, we die to please God. Everything that we do should be revolving around pleasing God. Think of what Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 through 24, where he's talking about, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, because if I live, then I'm going to be serving others, I'm going to be teaching and ministering to people, but if I die, I get to go be with God. And he didn't know, he was hard-pressed between the two, didn't know where, which way he wanted to go, because he knew both were, were, were desirable, um, but he realized he was going to be probably staying, because that was better for their sakes. Um, so any, everything that we're doing should be wrapped around pleasing God. When we're living here in this life right now, we have opportunities to please God that we won't have once this life is over. You know, we talked about faith and hope going away at some point. Um, the chance to demonstrate our faith is something that we have now living here in this world that we won't have once we're in heaven. So we can please God now by demonstrating our faith to others while we live here in this temporary place. Um, showing endurance during trials. Uh, when we're going through these light momentary afflictions, if we are considering them as light momentary afflictions and focusing on that eternal weight of glory, then we're pleasing God by doing that. If we're showing courage and boldness in telling others about Him while we live here in this temporary place, then that's pleasing God. It's spreading His message um, so that more can come to know Him. So we need to think of opportunities that we have now to please God and not just focus on pleasing God when we live with Him eternally in heaven. In verse 10, Paul says, We make it our aim to please Him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So we're going to get judged on the good and the bad. And we're not going to have a choice. 
We can't take a pass. We can't say, no thanks, I'd rather be excused. That's not the option. We, we, can't, we can't avoid that situation. It's coming when our life is up. Romans chapter 14, verse 12 there Paul wrote then, so then each of us, each one of us shall give an account of himself to God. Um, this is a time that none of us are going to be able to get out of. Um, so we have to remember that, that we are going to appear before that judgment seat of Christ. And he says that we're going to be judged on the good and the bad. Well, we know what the bad is, right? You know, we've, we've, we spend a lot of time on figuring out what sin is and how to avoid it. But we need to realize that we're going to be judged on, did we avoid sin or did we possibly harbor it? Did we live in a way that perhaps purposefully exhausted the grace of God? Um, I found one commentary that stated it this way. We cherish secret thoughts and cover up acts of which we are ashamed, but they will be laid open to God, angels, and men. How foolish to conceal things here to have them laid open before the universe. Like, well, that's a good point. You know, when you're tempted to think, well, no one knows. You know, this is just me. You know, God will forgive it. I'll be okay. How foolish of, of us is it to, to go through these things and, and realize that, that God knows all these things and it's going to be laid, laid open on that great judgment day? Do we continue in sin knowing that grace will abound? Do we have things in our lives that we know are not right, yet we don't want to take the time and the effort and the work to fix it because we think, well, that's what God's grace is for, when we know we should be trying to, to put those sins away from us and behind us? We're going to have to give an account of those things. He also mentions how we're going to have to give an account of the good things that we do in the body. We've talked a lot about that so far, but how do we use the resources, the time, the knowledge, the education, the opportunities for good that God gives us? We're stewards of all those things that God blesses us with while we live here on this earth. And when that day comes, we're going to have to give an account of those things. Um, my mind can't help but go to Matthew chapter 25 where you have those two Parables near the end of the chapter, the parable of the talents and the parable of the sheep and the goats. The parable of the talents, three men got three different sums of money. Two of them took that money, made more money with it, and was, was applauded by the master. The third one kept his money because he was afraid and didn't do any good with it. And because of that, his money was taken and given to the others. Jesus isn't, of course, making an investment lesson for us financially. He's wanting us to understand how are we using our resources and our opportunities that we have right now to please him. Are we doing more good with those things? When he talks about the parable of the sheep and the goats, when I was naked, when I was uh, hungry, when I was in prison, when I was all these different things, you came and visited me. You came and ministered to me. Are we doing those things for good now? Are we looking for opportunities? Are we making opportunities to do good while we're here in this world? Because we're going to be judged on those things once this life is over. Now down to verse 11 through verse 15, Paul talks, starts to talk about what motivates him in his ministry. Um, in verse 11 specifically, he says, Therefore, knowing the fear or the terror of the Lord, we persuade others. So one thing that he was motivated by was this terror of the Lord. Um, Paul knew that apart from Jesus, we are all the righteous targets of the terror of the Lord, right? Because we all have sin. And without Jesus forgiving those sins, we are rightfully um, the subjects of God's wrath. 
Um, he knew also from Ezekiel chapter 3, you probably have referenced this before in your Bibles, verses 17 through 19, how God was talking about the, the warning to the watchman. If you warn your man and he does nothing about it, then his blood is on his own head. But if you see the danger and you don't warn him, then I'll require his blood at your hand. And he's making that point about, about us as well as are we warning others? Are we teaching others? Are we trying to bring others to Christ? Paul, so partially Paul is, you know, giving a watch out message to others, but he's also realizing his own responsibility to warn. So there's two folds to this. When he says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Well, one side of it is, since I'm going to be judged on the good and the bad, then I know God requires this of me to warn others and to make sure that I tell people the good news about Christ. I'm going to do these things. And the other side is, since he knows that the, that the wrath of God is going to be poured out on sinners for not obeying, then that terrifies him, and he wants to help spare them from that punishment. So I think there's two aspects in, that, in, in the way that he's bringing that up. So that's part of his motivation. He's thinking about this, this terror of the Lord. And you know, th again, this is, this is something that was targeted on Jesus when he paid for our sins on the cross. He stood in our place. He took our punishment on, on himself so it wouldn't be directed on those who trust in him. He shielded those who would face that terror and that wrath of God from that punishment by standing in our place. And Paul was motivated by that. And I think we all should feel this burden of seeking to persuade men. It shouldn't just be something that the ministers or the elders or the Bible class teachers do. This should be something that all of us feel this desire, this longing in our hearts to be able to persuade people, knowing not only that we have a responsibility that God's going to hold us accountable for, but also knowing that that terror is coming and that we've been spared from that terror by being Christians and we want others to be spared from that as well. Down in verse 14, he also mentions the love of Christ controls us. Some versions say constrains us or compels us. And the idea behind this word is... Two things holding or pressing together or almost being gripped with this internal type of pressure. So Paul kind of was driven kind of internally by this motivation, um, by the love of Christ. You remember in Genesis chapter 20, 29 when Jacob agreed to work for seven years for Rachel? And to him it seemed just a few days because of his love for her. That's kind of the idea I think Paul's getting at. When we're motivated by the love of Christ, it doesn't feel like it's a responsibility. It doesn't feel like it's a duty or a thing we've got to check off. It feels like, I am so glad to get to do this for the one I love, just like we would do for the one that we love here on this earth. Um, Paul basically is saying this light momentary affliction that I'm going through right now, that we all go through right now, is nothing compared to what Jesus went through for us. In verse 15, he says, uh, And he died for all, that those who might live might no longer live for themselves. As Christians, we are no longer living for ourselves, but we're living for Christ. In Galatians 2.20, we've seen, we sing that song often, Crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Um, are, are we living for ourselves or are we living for Jesus? So Paul used those as part of his motivation. <clears throat> um, this, this fear of the Lord that he was 
uh, wanting to make sure he was persuading others and also um, being compelled by that love he had for Christ and the love that Christ had for him. Now look at verses 16 and 17. Paul gets to this concept of being a new creation in Christ. Verse 16 he says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. And I think he's meaning, because of this, earthly attachments mean very little to Christians compared to what they used to, right? Because, remember, we don't look at things that are seen, that are temporal, but we look at things that are unseen, that are eternal. Uh, Our earthly tent, we know, is going to be destroyed, and we're going to have a heavenly body. So we're not looking at the fleshly things. Uh, We walk by faith, chapter 5, verse 7, not by sight. So Paul says we're not really interested in impressive shows of the flesh, whether it's, you know, I think that's part of what he was getting at in verses 12 and 13, these people who were boasting about their outward appearance. It's like we're, we're not getting wrapped up in that. He said, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. This is probably just me being very foolish and never connecting the dots before. But in studying for this, it, it made me realize that I guess Saul was Saul of Tarsus, who we better know as Paul, was really a contemporary around when Jesus was doing his earthly ministry, right? And from what we can tell, it was maybe anywhere five to six years difference in age between those folks. Um, <clears throat> so it's, I, I guess I'd never thought of it in those terms before that, you know, we all know that there were the original disciples that followed Jesus day in and day out. And then Paul was kind of tacked in later on the end, but Paul was in and around that same bunch. I mean, he was probably, you know, we see him come on the scene in Acts chapter 8 in the stoning of Stephen, and he's one of the young men holding the coats, but he was probably following along. He probably heard Jesus teach. He may have seen one of Jesus' miracles, for all we know. Um, He knew who Jesus was, of course, because he was going and trying to drag people into prison because they were following this Jesus. So so Paul's talking about how, how he... Though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, I never really connected those dots before that, yeah, Paul probably did really see Jesus. He really was kind of in the crowd maybe in some of those instances that we read in the Gospels. But he says we regard him thus no longer because we don't serve Jesus of Nazareth in the flesh. We serve Jesus, the Son of God, who's ascended to, the, to heaven and sitting at the right hand of God. Um, so there's that change, and this was a, a big thing in the early church too, is moving on from the people who actually saw and interacted with Jesus, moving now on to a spiritual uh, representation of Jesus in heaven. I think that was a big thing. Um, And John chapter 16, verse 7, Jesus said, It's better for me that I leave so that the Spirit can come who can guide you into all truth. That's part of what I think Paul's referring to here, is that when Jesus left, that gave the opportunity for the Spirit to come to reveal people into all truth. Um, So that way, here in the 21st century, we can have this faith in Christ not uh, the Christ sitting on the, on the right hand of the throne of God, not Christ that's actually in the flesh, but some other part on the earth. <clears throat> then he gets into verse 17, which I, when Chuck brought this up in his sermon Sunday morning, I was sitting there crossing my fingers. He wasn't going to take all my points, and he didn't, fortunately. <laughs> but <clears throat> but it, I think it fits perfectly with what I want to talk about tonight and make this point here in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. <clears throat> Behold, the new has come. So this whole concept of a new creation, this old man being dead, being crucified with Christ, we have this new creature that comes from that. When we're saved, we're not 
just forgiven. And I hope you understand what I mean by that. We are forgiven. That's part of the reason why we, we are saved. Uh, we're, we're saved so that our sins will be washed away and we'll be forgiven. But we're not just forgiven. We are saved so that we can become a new creation and so that we can have new goals, new attitudes, new perspective, new life in Christ. Um, <clears throat> another commentary I, I read put it this way. It's unfair for us to expect those who are not in Christ to live as if they were a new creation, right? Because they're not in Christ. However, it's not unfair to expect a changed life from people who say they are Christians. If we claim to be a Christian, we're a new creation. And there should be some change. There should be uh, something that's different about us. It doesn't mean that we're perfect. It doesn't mean that we'll never sin again. But it means that we are changed that we're, and that we are being changed day by day. And that we're becoming more and more of what God wants us to be. Think of it in these terms. you got a little caterpillar, crawls along, finally eats enough, makes a cocoon, kind of goes, goes into hiding for a little while, busts out of that, that cocoon, and he's a butterfly. What do butterflies do? They fly, right? You see butterflies walking around very much, not, usually, not unless their wings are messed up, because they've been changed in this new creation. They've been metamorphosized to fly. And when we become Christians, we don't walk anymore. We have been changed so that we fly. See, see what I mean by that? <clears throat> I think we, we don't think of those things often enough, especially if we've been Christians for many number of years. I, I became a Christian in 1992, so that's been, man, a long time ago. Um, so throughout my life, there's been a lot of, a lot of change, hopefully, from that. But, you know, as, after we're Christians for a while, we perhaps don't think of ourselves as new creations like we, like we once did. I think we need to stop and reflect on that and, and realize that we are changed and, and that we are changed people and that we're constantly being changed from day to day. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, talks about being transformed by the renewal of your mind. When we become a new creation, we have a new head. We start thinking differently, right? We don't think of things the same way we used to because we've got this eternal perspective now versus what we had. Our hands are new. We act differently. If we're thinking differently, that leads to different actions. We also have a new home. We perceive things differently. We don't consider things in the same way that we once did. Our focus is more on heaven. Um, we're setting our eyes on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Um, those who are, another commentary put it this way too, those who are made new in Christ see the touch of decay on all the glory that men admire. You know, there's a lot of things in the world that people hold up and admire and say, this is the piece de resistance. This is where, where you should kind of strive to be. Well, when we're changed, when we're new creations, we look at those things and we go, yeah, but that's temporal. I can see that, and people can see that, but that's not eternal. Something has to change with us within us as we become this new creation so we can put that old man behind us and put, the, put on that new man. So verses 18 through 21 to finish out the chapter here. Paul talks about how all of this is from God. This whole ministry of reconciliation he's talking about, this is something God started. We didn't reconcile ourselves to God, God reconciled us to himself. 
You see the difference? Um, he says, All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God had to reconcile us to him by sending Christ. We could not reconcile ourselves to him. There's nothing we can do to recreate ourselves, to forgive ourselves in the sight of God, to earn salvation from God. Those things can't be done. It had to be done by God. He had to be the one to extend his hand for that. All this is from God. So uh, he says, verse 19, he has therefore given us this ministry of reconciliation. He's entrusted to us this message of reconciliation. And that's kind of sobering, isn't it? He's entrusted to us, us Christians, this message of reconciliation. In uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, Paul is talking about how you can know the mystery of Christ and how he says that God chose to make manifest or to make known his, uh, his eternal wisdom through the church. That the church has the responsibility to preach and to teach and to tell others about God and this plan of salvation. He's saying the same thing here, that this ministry of reconciliation has been entrusted to us. God could have chosen to entrust it in any number of different ways. God could have had this continual miracle happen over and over again that would just be a banner in front of everybody. He could keep revealing himself miraculously over and over again. He didn't choose to do it that way. He chose to entrust us, you and I, with this message of reconciliation so that we would be motivated by the love Christ has for us and the love we have for Christ for what he's done for us to go out and to persuade men uh, for him. Verse 19, it says, not counting their trespasses against them. God, of course, couldn't simply turn a blind eye to all of mankind's sins. If he could have just said, well, I know you did that, but I'll just look the other way. Then Christ really had to die for nothing. God's justice demanded that there be a punishment for those sins. And it rested on us up until Jesus died on that cross and provided that way for us to have that pardon and have that forgiveness. And then he says um, in verse 20, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So this term ambassadors, what does this term imply? You think about an ambassador for a nation. If someone's an ambassador on behalf of the United States, or back in these days, an ambassador for a certain nation or a king. What does that imply? This person that's an ambassador does not speak to please his audience, but he speaks to please the king who sent him. He doesn't speak of his own authority. He doesn't make up his own rules on the fly. He only speaks that which he's authorized to speak. Um, he says what he's been commissioned to say, and he's more than just a messenger, he's a representative. He's someone that's intended to reflect the country or king that they are representing. So when we think of ourselves as ambassadors, I think that, that speaks a lot from those terms. We're speaking where God speaks. We want to be in agreement with what God says to do. But also we are to represent God in the highest fashion that we have. Not for our glory, but for his glory so that people will know that we are serving him and not serving for ourselves. For what it's worth, I, a couple of commentaries I saw mentioned that we really can't consider ourselves ambassadors for Christ because we aren't personally speaking for the king like the apostles had a personal way that they spoke as they were guided by the Holy Spirit to speak um, on behalf of God. I, I kind of see what they're saying, but I, I think that's missing the point of what Paul's trying to, 
reflect to us. Um, I don't think he was saying we, me, and the writers of this book are ambassadors. I think he was saying we all are ambassadors for Christ. Um, but for what it's worth, that's, that, that thought is out there. Um, and then he says, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. How amazing is it to think that God is pleading to us? Who are we that God should plead for us? When you think of the term pleading, I mean, you know when your kid wants to stay up a little bit later at bedtime, it's like, please, Dad, just ten more minutes or whatever. You know, just begging, begging, begging. Or maybe even something more serious, someone who's pleading for their life or pleading for safety of their children or whatever the case is. Just this idea of pleading. God is pleading for humanity. And God is doing that through this message of reconciliation that you and I have been entrusted with. God is pleading through us as ambassadors um, to be able to implore on Christ's behalf for people to be reconciled to God. Such an amazing thought. Every Christian, I think, should be an ambassador for Christ. We should all realize this honor that we have to represent God and to be able to speak to others on behalf of, of the king that we serve. And then finally, verse 21, one of my favorite verses, it just, it, it's, it's a little complicated with the wording of it, but it just makes such a good deep statement. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made him that had no sin to be sin for us, so that we can become the righteousness of God. Christ wasn't guilty. He couldn't be made guilty. But he was treated like he was guilty so that we could be able to stand righteous in, his, in God's sight. He was willing to stand in the place of the guilty even though he wasn't guilty. Such an amazing thing to think about how God was willing to do that, or Christ was willing to do that. To come and take that punishment that like we talked about before, that terror of the Lord that we should all be aware of and fearful of. And Jesus was willingly uh, able to do that and come and take that punishment for us. Not for the guarantee, not for the assurance that every single person that's ever been created would ultimately turn to him, but just for the hope, just for the pathway to be open so that we could have that access to the Father again. Not only did he take our sins from us, but he also gave us our righteousness. He gave us his righteousness, I should say. Um, so it's not that, that, that we just, again, it's not that we are just forgiven, but we are newly created, we're made again into this new person so that we can have the righteousness of God. Such, a, such an amazing chapter. I, I, hope, I hope it's been a benefit to you. Hopefully this will be one that you'll have some notes in your Bible that will um, have some things that you can go back and reflect on later that will encourage you down the road. But appreciate your attention. Let's close with a word of prayer.